Boker Tov, Shalom Aleichem, everyone. Glad you are uh, able to be here, Baruch Hashem, and able to join in on the uh, Aliyah day. Chanel, it has been a long time. Chanel number five. Glad to see you here, Baruch Hashem. Glad to see everybody here. Hope you're doing well and being blessed. We are in Parashah Bayetse. I want to get right to the Parashah and uh, delve, in, delve into some insights here from ancient uh, Jewish sources. <clears throat> As we are looking at the word of uh, Hashem, the word of um, the living God, Baruch Hashem. And we are... We we are theoretically in the third Aliyah, but but I said yesterday I wanted to stick with this this story of Yaakov as he has departed from Haran, uh, or excuse me, he's departed to go towards Haran, right, to find a wife, and uh, he encounters the place, the place that he encounters is Mount Moriah, the place of the Temple Mount. What makes Mount Moriah so so holy, so set apart, according to all the ancient Jewish sources, is the Akedah of Isaac, which is very interesting because it's important to me, and I think it should be important to you, to find precedence for what we believe in the Torah, in the study of Torah, let me put it that way, which includes Jewish sources. This is why it's important, by the way, for there nothing. This is why it is important that there not be anything "quote unquote" new in the New Testament. Quite contrary to the Greek mind, to the Greek mind, new and fresh is uh, exciting and seemingly good. But <clears throat> the problem with that, one of the many problems we've we've cited. Uh, significant problems with that theology that really, really seek, really undermined uh, our entire belief in God. Actually, if the New Testament is truly a New Testament, a completely New Testament, then quite frankly, it completely undermines everything that we believe about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Completely contradicts it, actually. But we won't get into that right now. But we will say is that one of the pr other problems with having a completely New Testament is there's nothing to base anything on. It's all made, and therefore it can be, it, this is why there are all these cults and subcults within so-called Christianity is because since there's nothing to base anything on, there's no pattern, there's no... Um, doesn't have to be like anything, it's completely new, then you can just uh, make it up as you go. Could be anything. Could be Bert and Ernie. Could be, any, could be anything you want it to be. Okay, because there's, there's nothing to go back and say, yeah, this is, this is what it is. Okay. So the Akedah, the reason why Mount Moriah is, which is the Temple Mount, is so holy is because of a human sacrifice. And specific and not just any human sacrifice because human sacrifice is deplorable to the Jewish mind 
except when it's not. And in this case, it's not when it involves a particular individual who is unique. The only, the only son, the only begotten son. Now, it's interesting, too, because if you look at Abraham, you're like, well, Abraham has, he's, he's not the only son of Abraham. Well, begotten doesn't necessarily mean it's the only one you have. The word begotten actually can mean a unique one. One who is, uh, possesses unique qualities or has a unique nature or, or who is somehow set apart from the other sons that you may literally have. So this place is called Hamakom. We talked about yesterday how Hamakom is a name of God. Okay, because he's everywhere. But it's also the name of this place. Hamakom is referring simply to the place. What, what does it mean by that? It means the place where, uh, where the Akedah was offered. So it says... Um, in verse 11, in ver chapter 28 and verse 11, it says he encountered the place and spent the night there because the sun had set. Okay. And <clears throat> it goes, it goes on to say, uh, Kiva Hashemesh. Okay. Cause for the sun had set. Veikach me'aveni. Hamakom ve'yashem, merato ve'shivkar be'makom chahu. And he took from the stones of the place, which he arranged around his head, and lay down in that place. Now, it, it's important to point out that he took... Uh, from the stones of the place which he arranged around his head and laid down in that place. Now, many people have interpreted this erroneously to, to mean that he was using the stones as a pillow, but um, if you've ever been camping, and we certainly have, great, my, my representative and I have been camping a lot, uh, I, people don't use stones for pillows. Uh, you just don't. It's extraordinarily uncomfortable. Um, and, and it would, it would just take just a few minutes for it to be so uncomfortable. You couldn't, uh, uh, you know, you couldn't lay there. Uh, but it doesn't say he put him under his head. It said he put him around his head. And there's many reasons for this that are given, um, many esoteric reasons, Rabbi, as, a, as an example, let me give you an example here. Pirkei, the Rabbi Eliezer, says that, that Jacob took these 12 stones, and there were actually 12 of them. He took the 12 stones from the altar, okay? Then this is important. He took the 12 stones from where? From the altar that his father and grandfather had built for the Akedah. That's important, okay, as, as with respect to what I'm about to tell you. He says... Uh, he took these 12 stones from the altar upon which his father had been bound. When these, when these stones, which indicated to him that 12 tribes would descend from him, coalesced into one stone, we're going to see that in the scripture here in a minute, he perceived that all the tribes were destined to become one people, indivisible and unique on the earth, as it is said, 
And who is like your people Israel, a nation that is one on the earth? Now, uh, so the idea here is that there was a prophetic, there was a, there was a, a prophetic vision that was given to Jacob that when he took these 12 stones from the altar, they would turn into one stone and he would see that the, the 12 tribes are going to one day be unified as the one people. <clears throat> but there's another reason why Jacob did this. Okay. If you look at the character and the nature of Jacob, he, he seemed to be somebody who would go out of his way to try to live up to the ideal of his father and grandfather. And very much so in contrast to Esau, who unfortunately was a wicked man. So here he is, he's on his way to Haran. He's gone to Beersheba. Hashem has not told him to stay in the, in the Holy Land. So he realizes he doesn't have the same sanctity as his father. So he's been told to leave. He gets to Mount Moriah, where, the, where his father was sacrificed. He doesn't lay down on the altar itself, because frankly, that would be a little bit sacrilegious. Because first of all, he has not been commanded by God to be a sacrifice. So to lay down on the altar would be bad form. So what does he do instead? He lays down on the ground and he arranges these stones around his head. As if to suggest, I am willing to be a sacrifice. I'm willing to lay in the place of my father. In other words, my Hashem, my devotion to you is as strong as it was for Avraham Avinu and Yitzhak Avinu. So it goes on to say, and he dreamt. He dreamt. And I, I will tell you that God loves, I, I, I've experienced in my life, Hashem loves to speak to us in our dreams, and we should go to bed at night praying the bedtime Shema and asking Hashem to make sure that our dreams do not confound us, that our bad ideas do not confound us, and rather that His Spirit should envelop us and that He should speak to us in night dreams and night visions. So it says that he dreamt, and behold, a ladder was set earthward, and its top reached heavenward. And behold, angels of God were descending and descending on it. Now it's interesting here because um, if we look at this phrase, descending and descending uh, on it, the, the word... Uh, it can also be on him. They were descending and descending, uh, ascending and descending uh, on him. So we'll come back to that in just a moment because it's interesting. Um, so it says here, a ladder was set earthward and its top reached heavenward and behold, angels of God were ascending and descending on it or descending and descending on him. So the hymn could refer to Jacob or it could refer to the ladder itself. The word for ladder is also the same gematria as Mount Sinai. So there seems to be a correlation between the, the, the ladder and the Torah of God. Angels ascend and descend on the commandments uh, of Hashem. 
So let's just read a couple of insights here as we're getting in into this. Let's look at some uh, insights here from Rabbi Monk. It says, he and he dreamt, many interpretations are given to this dream, it says, consistent with the concept mentioned in the preceding verse that Jacob prayed in the place of the future sanctuary where his forefathers had also prayed and where prayers rise to heaven. Now, the forefathers are the ones who instituted the three times of prayer. Uh, Abraham is responsible for the morning prayer, Isaac for the Minka prayer, and Jacob for the evening prayer. There's also an idea within Yiddishkeit that all of our prayers, when you, when you, when you or I pray here, well, I'm in Texas, maybe you're in Texas too, perhaps you're somewhere else in the United States or other, somewhere else in the world, our prayers do not ascend to heaven from where we are. But rather, they travel to Israel and they ascend from the Temple Mount upward and that's where the portal of Shemayim is, the portal of heaven. Which I happen to think is pretty neat. That when we, the, the, all of the prayers in the world, there was a video that was put out by Aish Actually, it wasn't put out by Aish. We actually watched it in Jerusalem at the Aish Center. And it was never published to my knowledge, which is unfortunate. I don't know why. It was a wonderful video, very moving, very beautiful. Uh, for whatever reason, they never pub published it. But it shows people praying and the prayers flying through the air from all over the world and then reaching Jerusalem, reaching Mount Moriah, and then going up in like a, a tornadic-like swirl up to the heavenlies. And that's, that's really the idea, is that all of our prayers go to Yerushalayim, specifically to the Temple Mount. Which brings up another point, I've mentioned this before, but for the new people here. Um, it's been said that Jewish people pray to the east. And at least once which is not surprising. I've come across came across a gentile group, you know, Hebrew roots, uh and they were uh you know, it's one of those kind of it's just, it's anti there's an anti-semitic spirit, but we won't dwell on that. But basically they were saying, oh, they, look, you know, the Jews pray to the east and that's pagan, blah 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 blah. And they were trying to liken it to sun worship and all this kind of stuff. Well, of course Admittedly, there was kind of an inward chuckle in, in my mind because Jewish people pray to the East if you live in the Western Hemisphere, but Jewish people don't pray to the East. That's actually not what we do. We pray facing the Temple Mount. In Los Estados Unidos, it just so happens that that's an easterly direction. If you live in South Africa, you're going to pray to the north. If you live in Norway, you'll pray to the south. If you live in Japan, you're going to pray to the west. If you're in Israel, you're going to pray towards Jerusalem. If you're in Jerusalem, anywhere in Jerusalem, you're going to pray towards the Temple Mount, whatever direction it happens to be, depending on where you are in the city. So it's not a north, south, east, west direction. It's actually towards the Temple Mount. Some of you already know that. It's really kind of a you know pre-K um, Judaism, 
but some of you may not know that. And so that's why. And so that's uh, that's what it amounts to. So if you hear about praying to the east, that's only applicable if you live in North or South America or perhaps in Great Britain or, or Italy or whatever. But if you live, you know, in India, you're going to pray to the west. <clears throat> so... Rambam, uh, it goes on to say here, the latter, uh, the latter Jacob saw in his dream represents the ascent of prayer towards the celestial sphere. The angels rose up from the earth carrying the supplications of men to the celestial throne and then came back down, then again laden with heavenly blessings. So this is what these, this is symbolizing. Rambam quotes a passage from the Midrash Tankuma indicating that the latter had four rungs, these corresponding to the four stages which thought must pass through in order to reach God. Now, the scripture says a ladder was set earthward. Here, the ladder designates the place and relationships of the different beings in the universe. A ladder set earthward designates the terrestrial world, the world of perception and experience from which emanates all worldly knowledge. Now, the scripture says its top reached heavenward, and this teaches us that knowledge progresses from the world of the senses towards the world of saintly beings and higher spheres. And the scripture says, and angels of God were ascending and descending on it. This alludes to the supersensible world of the angels, where knowledge penetrates still deeper. And finally, the fourth and last stage of spiritual evolution represents the goal of knowledge and, at the same time, of prayer, as it says, and behold, Hashem was standing over him. So it, it goes on to say that uh, in, this, in this text it says, uh, and behold, Hashem was standing over him. This, according to Rashi, means to protect him. So God is... The purpose of God standing over Yaakov was to protect him. Ramban also takes the preposition alav as referring to Jacob and not the latter. He interprets this thought more explicitly. The prophetic dream revealed to Jacob that all terrestrial life is governed by intermediate forces, that is, the angels of God, which, after drawing their sustenance from the Supreme Being, descend to enrich this lower world, Jacob and his offspring are the only ones not entrusted to the hands of the agents by, or excuse me, agents of the Creator. So, Jewish people are not under angels. Now, I do want to point something out here, as we just read. and uh, Remember how Yeshua said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Of course, he wasn't being literal, because... Torah forbids us to eat flesh and drink blood, as particularly, obviously, of human beings. We're not allowed to drink blood. But he, was, he, was he being literal? No. What does the flesh and blood ultimately represent? It represents someone's essence, right? So the blood is indicative of somebody's spirit. We're not allowed to eat blood, period. Okay? Which is why... Um, you know, people say, for instance, well, I'm not Jewish, I'm a Messianic Gentile, and I follow the laws of Acts 15. 
Of course, there's completely misunderstanding Acts 15, but let's put that aside for a moment and just pretend that there's only four laws that Messianic Gentiles have to follow. Well, if that were true, then Messianic so-called Gentiles would be eating kosher because it is we Messianic Gentiles are forbidden. Um, they're forbidden to eat meat that's been strangled. That is a euphemism for not kosherly slaughtered. Why? Because you're not allowed to eat blood. So when Messiah Yeshua said, drink, eat my flesh, drink my blood, what what's he referring to? Well, there's actually many places in the Midrash and in other sources where the, the population of heaven uh, is eating, so to speak, subsiding upon the presence of God, his essence. In fact, in the Midrash, it talks about the elders who ascended with um, Moses on Mount Sinai, and they saw Hashem. And it says they, they ate and drank and, and was in the presence of Hashem. And the, and the sages bring down, uh, what were they eating? Because the scripture doesn't say that they packed a lunch. And the sages uh, point out they were, they were feasting, as it were, upon the divine presence. Okay? So it says here, that the angels draw their substance, their substance, rather, from the supreme being. I, this is why I want to point this out, because we see this is, this is what angel food is. Angel food is the divine presence. So when Yeshua says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, he clearly was not being literal. What are you saying here is you have to feast upon my essence. Well, Yeshua is Yeshua. Yeshua is the Torah. Yeshua is the Torah. Yeshua is the divine Messiah. Right? And so how do we, the question becomes, how do we, quote, feast upon the divine presence? Well, ladies and gentlemen, we do so by studying the word of God. This is why the Torah says man does not live on what? Bread alone, but what? Every word that emanates from the mouth of God. So in other words, the study of Torah, the study of scripture, which is Torah, Torah is the word of God. The law of Moses is the holy scriptures. They're one and the same. This is why people say, well, the law is not for today. What you're saying, and you don't realize it, is that you're saying the scripture is not for today. You've just allowed the Satan to take your bread away. Man does not live on bread alone, but what? Every word that emanates from the, word, the, the mouth of God. So since Yeshua is the word made flesh, Yeshua is the law of Moses made flesh, Yeshua is the Torah made flesh, and since man doesn't live on bread alone, but every what word that emanates from the mouth of God, it makes sense then that he would say, unless you drink, eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's talking about the word of God. So this insight goes on to say that the children of Israel are not under the angel, angels. We're not under the stars. We don't have, we don't depend upon the mazel of the month, like, like astrology. 
Now we can pay attention to the mazel, and the mazel can be employed to work on our behalf, so to speak, right? Because the mazel, that is the astrological sign of the month, is, is a creation of Hashem. Hashem created it. It didn't create itself. The Satan surely didn't create it. He can't create anything. Okay? You have more creative power than the Satan has, if you want to, if you want to know the truth. Okay? So it's God who created them, so they work on our behalf, but we're not subject to them. So in other words, if the mazel is a negative mazel, we don't have to live in fear because we're not under the mazel. We're under Hashem. Okay? So it says here, uh, it is God himself who stands over Jacob. Jacob now being a euphemism for Klal Israel. They were the, the congregation of Jacob. It is God himself who stands over Jacob to protect him at all times and to save him from evil forces. For the Jewish people is Hashem's portion. Jacob is the measure of his inheritance. And in Deuteronomy 32.9 is where it says this. And this, con this goes on to say that the con this concept mirrors the Talmudic statement in Shabbos 156a that jury is not subject to the blind laws of natural destins, uh, uh, destinies. Jury is under the immediate protection of the master of the universe. Now, I want to point something out here. Because as you know, in Lapid Judaism, we... I want to say this... Uh, I don't want to say, I don't want to use wrong phrasing, uh, but basically we we contend against we push back against the errant teaching of so-called messianic Gentiles, and of and of course the the absurd notion of the Noahide, you know, idea, which um, neither one of those are legitimate. There's no such thing as a Messianic Gentile, and you can't just be a Noahide. There's not two covenants, right? We've gone over this and over this and over this and over this and over this. But I, I want to point out, you will never, ever, 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 dot, 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 bold, underline, all caps, italic, never find anything in any Jewish literature anywhere that gives any covenantal blessing at all to anyone who's not Jewish. Period. Okay? And this is all based upon the scripture because why? Because the new covenant belongs, if you read Jeremiah 31 and you believe it, it belongs to the Jews. Period. And here it's saying here that God is the one who protects Jews. Everybody else is under the protection of, of angels, which are obviously of a lower level. And not only that, but if you're not Jewish, then you are subject to the blind laws of natural destinies. But if you're a Jew, then you're under the immediate protection of the master of the universe. Now, many people, and understandably so, will hear me say such a thing and they will bristle and think me a racist, so to speak. Right? Um... But it's that's wrong thinking. If I tell you that the covenant is for the Jews, your 
first question to me should be, how can I become a Jew? Ha. Aha. Isn't that peculiar? Why isn't that, why isn't that somebody's first question? How can I become a Jew then? Why is it, well, that's not fair. I don't want to be Jewish, but I want the covenant. Why is that the first response? Now, part of the problem is, is that people think that being Jewish is a race. It's like DNA. Like you have to have Jewish DNA. Ladies and gentlemen, Judaism is not a race. That's, the, that's a mistake the Nazis made. Okay? It's like I tell people all the time. I'll say, you know, this person has anti-Semitism. And they'll say, how can they be anti-Semitic? They're Jewish. Well, ladies, meaning meaning they have a Jewish mommy or a Jewish daddy or a Jewish, you know, somehow somehow they have Jewish DNA somewhere, right? Ladies and gentlemen, that would make sense if Judaism was a race, okay? It'd be pretty hard for me to be prejudiced against white people. That'd be pretty weird, right? But Judaism is not a race. This is why you can be Jewish and still be an anti-Semite. In fact, most of the worst anti-Semites in history actually were Jews. The guy who was a priest, what do you call those guys? Like a monk. Je not, was it a Jesuit? Doesn't matter. Anyway, he was like a priest. He was the guy who was pretty much responsible for the, the Great Inquisition. He was, a, he was a Jewish guy who can, became a, a Christian and uh, became uh, a priest or whatever. And, and he was like one of the main guys in charge. So it doesn't matter. But that's because Judaism is not, is not a race. Therefore, anybody can become Jewish. In other words, you, you, you can't just declare yourself a Jew. You can't do that, right? You can't just say, presto, I'm Jewish. You can't, you can't do that. It it's like a wedding. You know, you have to have witnesses. And so you can't just say, hey, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm married all of a sudden. You can't do that. But, but there, is a, there is a protocol. It's, pretty, it's fairly simple, right? And for, for somebody to become Jewish, it's, it's doable. So in other words, what I'm trying to encourage you to do is don't look at that as a barrier. Look at it as an invitation, but don't be the person who wants all the blessings and no responsibility. That, see, that's the, we've talked about this example many times before. That's the person who struggles, uh, you know, with the idea of becoming Jewish. Even though our God is the God of Israel, our Messiah is the Messiah of Israel, all of our heroes are Jews, and, you know, we read a book that's written in Hebrew, but we don't want to be Jewish. It doesn't make any sense. And people don't usually think about that. It makes, doesn't make any sense at all. Um, so it says, goes on to say, and he said to him, for the first time in his life, Jacob is personally addressed, it says here, by divine speech. Okay. Just as with Abraham, his first revelation takes place just as he gives up a peaceful existence at home to immigrate to a strange land. This is characteristic of the destiny of Jews. God invests the family of Abraham with a mission which is destined 
to be accomplished above all in exile. To be Jewish means to remain faithful to God while in the midst of the other nations. Ladies and gentlemen, did you hear that? We're going we're gonna to end it with, the, with this insight. We're going to come back tomorrow. We're going to stay here in the first Aliyah because there's just so much to cover. And we, we don't, you know, years have gone by. We haven't really addressed it in detail, but we're going to do that this week um, in this part. Many people say, why am I not in Israel? I, I, I really would rather be in Israel. And frankly, me too. I would much rather live in Jerusalem or Rishon Letzion, where Abi lives, or in Tiberias. I'd, I'd, I'd much rather live there, right? It'd be so much easier. So much easier. First of all, we my life would be normal there. I would go to the grocery store and never have to look for a hexure because everything in the store has a hexure on it. Most of the restaurants, not all, but most of them are certified kosher. You don't have to think about it, especially if you're in Jerusalem. It's just so much, so much, so much. Judaica stores are normal there. They're not like this, you know, freakazoid where you have to find one in the, in the middle of, of, of nowhere. You know, you're like, oh, look, look, a Judaica store. Wow. There, it's like they're everywhere. It's like living in heaven. Okay, not to mention the holiness of the land itself and all the other brothers and sisters that are there. It would just be so much better. So why are we here? Wherever here is, why are we here? And the answer is because that's the plight of Jews, to live in exile. For what purpose? In order to be missionaries. To bring other people into the covenant. Not to leave them as Gentiles or Noahides, I roll but to bring them into the covenant, to encourage them into the covenant. Psychologically, do you know why most Jewish people, especially Messianic Jewish people, don't want non-Jewish people to convert? Do you know why? Here's the truth. It's so true. Because typically we enjoy being special. And if everybody else can be special like us, then we lose seemingly our uniqueness. So we'd rather be the one Jewish guy in the midst of a bunch of Messianic Gentiles, therefore we can be special and everybody can pat us on the back and say, aren't you cool because you're Jewish? And to me, ladies and gentlemen, that's, that's pretty, I don't know what you'd call that. It's just not right. We should always remember that we are special. You are special, just like everybody else. And once we realize that reality that you're special and I'm special, just like everybody else, then we can help everybody else be special, just like us. And it says here, we are to remain faithful to the covenant of God while in the midst of other nations. A lot of people don't want to live a Jewish life because it's just, frankly, somewhat challenging. You have to be, you can't just eat anywhere. You you have to be discriminatory in, in certain instances. And to a lot of people, that's just a drag. But to a Jewish person, that's what it means to live in covenant. We are in the world, but not of the world. A lot of people say they want that, but then they want to just live like worldly people. You know, we say, well, I'm in the world, but not of the world. Okay, so what do you do that's different from the world? Uh, 
Exactly. So living Jewishly, let me tell you something. If you actually live a Jewish life, let me tell you something. You will be in the world but out of the world, I guarantee. All right, we'll be here tomorrow. Well, again, we're just going to continue down this thing. There's a lot more to share about uh, the ladder of Jacob, so we're going to stay there. In fact, the entire drosh is going to be about that, or not maybe to a large extent. We'll get there. Let's do that tomorrow. God bless all of you. Have an amazing, 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 amazing day. It is going to be a day of good news for you. Remember to contribute financially to Sar Shalom and Lapid Judaism. Your generous donations are what keep us uh, going, keep the light of Torah going, and people need it. So thank you for that. May God bless you, and we return it to you a thousand times. Shalom, welcome, everybody. Look forward to seeing you tomorrow.